Hi, everyone. Oh my gosh. Oh, there we go. It's so great to be back and to see all of you. And thanks to Reverend Sean for asking me to be a guest speaker today. When he called to catch up with me and ask me if I was available to speak, I said yes immediately. And we found a date that worked and I promised to send him a title of my talk by the end of the day. So I started asking myself, what do I want to talk about? What's really active in my life right now? What metaphors are really alive for me right now? And interestingly, nothing was coming to me. So I did a little meditating. I pulled out my journal. I did a bit of writing. Still, nothing that made me go, ah, that's it. So I let it alone. I now have trust in my creative process, so I knew that because I'd asked the questions, I'd start getting some ideas. I'd start getting some clues. So later in the day, I was on social media, and a friend of mine, a fellow interfaith minister, had posted something about a sermon that he was giving at a church in New Jersey where he was the resident minister. He's a wonderfully opinionated, passionate, and irreverent, and no surprise his sermons reflect that. This particular title really grabbed me, though, for obvious reasons. The Gospel According to Star Trek. <laughs> right, right, right? Isn't that fabulous? I loved it, and I got it immediately. So using Star Trek and its indelible characters as a clear metaphor for the spiritual quest to seek out new life, new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Let's hear it. Uh... <laughs> Star Trek is celebrated as an exploration of human morality and political and social issues. I would never describe myself as a devoted Trekkie because I only ever watched the original series with Leonard Nimoy as Spock and William Shatner as Captain Kirk. Well, actually I did see Patrick Stewart as Captain Picard in a couple of episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation because he was, well, Patrick Stewart. But. As a kid, I was glued to the television when Star Trek came on, and I practiced Spock's Vulcan salute until it was effortless. So no, I'm not a Trekkie, but I'm enough of a Trekkie that I googled that, that title. And lo and behold, there was quite a lot on that topic. There's even a book with this title. Of course there is. With very quick investigation into the book, my eyes were drawn immediately to a page describing Spock's famous hand gesture. It's something from Nimoy's Jewish heritage. Mm -hmm. A gesture used by Jewish priests during ceremony that is said to bring the congregation to Shekinah, or the indwelling presence of God. Live long and prosper. Is there any better gospel than that? <laughs> so while I'm Googling that, there's a bunch of other gospel titles, of course there are. The Gospel According to Star Wars, where George Lucas wrote, which George Lucas wrote based on Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero. May the force be with you. The Gospel According to Peanuts. Who could forget, right? Who could forget the gentle wisdom of Linus, who said, 
Worry won't stop the bad stuff from happening. It just stops you from enjoying the good. Mm. The gospel according to Shakespeare. It's not in the stars to hold our destiny, but in ourselves. Then my eyes landed on it. Holy clues, the gospel according to Sherlock Holmes. That's it, that's me, a spiritual detective. I love detective stories. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a detective. I grew up devouring Nancy Drew, reading in the dark under my bed covers with a flashlight. I was addicted to watching the detectives of television. Columbo. Yes, the disarmingly self-effacing character played by Peter Falk. And Jessica Fletcher. Yes, the word-loving, persistent detective of murder she wrote, played by the glorious Angela Lansbury. And not to mention Inspector Clouseau from the hilarious series of Pink Panther films. The Gospel According to Sherlock Holmes, The Eternal Skeptic, an unusual spiritual sage, but truth and mystery often comes in odd packaging. I was in. Didn't matter that I wasn't actually a Sherlock Holmes fan. It's all about solving the mystery. Albert Schweitzer said, whenever we penetrate to the heart of things, we always find a mystery. Life and all that goes with it is unfathomable. The heart of this is the mystery. We can all agree that the greatest mystery that we all share and that we desire to solve is the mystery of life itself. I looked up the word detective in the dictionary. A person whose occupation it is to investigate. What do you do when you investigate? You pay attention to clues. You ask questions. Detective stories speak to the child within us, probably because all children are naturally very curious. Researchers tell us that kids up to the age of four ask 300 to 400 questions per day. Per day, wow. Yeah, you. Anyone with a toddler can verify that this after hearing their bundle of joy ask why, why, why? over and over and over. <laughs> yes! So when I was a little kid, we lived in a newly built suburban community in Syracuse, New York, and the land behind our house was not yet built on, but had been partially cleared. So I was able to ride my bike through, uh, through all of this thinned jungle. I spent hours and hours out there climbing trees, asking them questions. How old are you? Do you have any kids? Catching pollywogs and asking them, are you excited to become a frog? <laughs> asking God, who am I? Why am I here? When I grow up, am I gonna marry Davy Jones from the monkeys? <laughs> right, right. Actually, it was Mickey Dolan for me, but yeah. <laughs> he was cute. Yeah. When I was seven years old, my grandmother, my mom's mother, died unexpectedly from surgery complications. 
My family had traveled from Syracuse to Pittsburgh to visit her in the hospital after what was to have been a very routine procedure. We arrived after our long drive at the hospital, and I distinctly remember being met by my grandfather, my pap, who delivered the devastating news to my parents, and then watching my mother collapse. This was my first experience with death, and I was extremely curious about it. I tried to engage with all of the adults, asking a myriad of questions. I desperately wanted to see my grandmother. I wanted to understand what had happened to her body and to attend her funeral. But my parents wouldn't let me. They said I was too young, thought I was too sensitive, that it would be too much for me to handle. I was absolutely furious. It was precisely because I was sensitive that I wanted to go, because I understood at seven, that this is the part of the mystery of life. And I had my questions. Funny how kids are much better at simply asking the pertinent questions about tough issues. They don't carry baggage around. They just want to know. Where do we go when we die? When I was nine, my parents moved us from Syracuse to Pittsburgh, partially so my mother could be near her father to care for him. My other set of grandparents were also living in Pittsburgh, and to settle into the community more quickly, we joined their Presbyterian church, and for a while we went regularly. I think it was also a way for my father to feel closer and reconnect to his parents. Well. I absolutely loved going to church. I loved getting dressed up. I loved our minister, tall, handsome, in contrast to his gentle, melodic voice. I loved the ritual. I loved the costume. I loved the iconography and the music. Oh, what a choir we had. We had a soprano in the choir that was straight out of central casting. She sang louder than anyone else with a vibrato that... Well, let's just say it shook the heavens. But soon, I began to have a lot of questions about the stories that were being told in these sermons. These stories just didn't make any sense to me. And when I would ask questions, I was put off. I was shut down. I was told to stop by my grandparents, by the adults in general. And try again as I might, I'd hit resistance. And I could only hear that's just the way it is a certain number of times. By my late teens, when I could have easily engaged with our minister directly, I'd already mentally left the church, asking my questions out in the world at large <coughs> and engaging my spiritual curiosity intimately and directly with Source itself. I find that the way that I understand the world is by asking questions. Curious people have an intrinsic, ongoing interest in their inner landscape, their inner experience, as well as the world around them. Who am I? Why am I here? Where do we go when we die? When I left the church, I added quite a few more questions. 
Albert Einstein said, the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. One cannot help but be in awe when contemplating the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little mystery of the, a little of the mystery every day. The important thing is to not stop questioning, never lose a holy curiosity. Never lose a holy curiosity. We know the qualities of a spiritual life, gratitude, reflection, being in the present moment, grace. This morning I want to add spiritual detection, holy curiosity to our list. Joseph Campbell said, people say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive, so that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will resonate with our own innermost being and reality, so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. Every spiritually alive person I've ever known is curious, but not every religious person I've known has been curious. In fact, religions often fear curiosity. They don't want people looking at things too closely or asking questions. When something doesn't make sense, religions ask us to just have faith. When religions are become uncomfortable with curiosity, while religions are often uncomfortable with curiosity, spirituality encourages curiosity. The primary concern of spirituality is intimacy with God, creator, the universe, whatever word comforts you. All religions begin as spiritual movements, but if they gradually become more codified and rigid, and if submission to rules becomes more important than intimacy with God, when unquestioned obedience is more important than spiritual aliveness, then curiosity is no longer seen as a virtue. It becomes a threat. Did you know that our brain releases dopamine, the good, feel-good hormone, when something new is encountered? After experiencing curiosity, scientists have recorded people having higher levels of dopamine. Curiosity is a cognitive process which leads to the behavior perceived as motivation. In other words, if a person is highly curious, they will be highly motivated. It is also true that happy people are more curious, which could mean that the relationship is a bit like the question of the chicken and the egg. Which comes first, curiosity or happiness? Good question. <laughs> One research study looked at how curious people fared in emotionally charged situations and conversations. It found that people who were curious had less aggressive responses to inflammatory comments 
and felt less animosity toward those who treated them poorly. That would come in handy with our time on social media, yes? <laughs> so why do we become afraid to ask questions? What is the opposite of curiosity? Isn't it discouragement? If your questions aren't treated with respect, if you're told over and over to stop asking so many questions, if you're told you can't question certain things, or my personal favorite, that's just the way we do things here. Wouldn't that be discouraging? The definition of discouragement, to cause to lose confidence or enthusiasm. To lose enthusiasm. And the root of enthusiasm is entheos, spirit within, the God within. So the opposite of curiosity is to lose the engagement with spirit within. Here's the real rub. Unlike the detective stories in which the mystery will eventually be solved, the mystery of life has no final puzzle piece that completes it, no last ribbon that wraps it all up neatly. Some people believe spiritual life is about solving problems and finding answers. We crave both internal order and cosmic understanding. We read, we think, we struggle to understand. We think we will feel comforted, we will feel safe, when we have the correct answers. What will the correct answers deliver? A feeling of being in control. And we all know there is no such thing as being in control. Spiritual curiosity can be difficult if you have a vested interest in popular answers. But spiritual life is about exploration discovery, and growth, and a deep understanding that the only constant in life is change. A deep understanding that the only constant in life is change. Each question reveals another, deeper question. As Eugene Ionesco said, it's not the answers that enlightens, it's the questions. I don't have any kids, by choice, but I do mentor a few young women. I tell them the only reason I'm nice to them is so that they'll feel responsible for me when I'm old and crazy. <laughs> One of my young women uh, recently asked me about my spiritual practice. She wanted to know what I did. And I knew what she was asking. She wanted to know about meditation or if I did yoga. And I began my answer with, my marriage is my spiritual practice. She cocked her head. And slowly a smile formed and she understood. And I added, my creative life, my performing, my singing, my writing, these two are also my spiritual practices. My spirit is fed by many practices, and as I grow and evolve, these practices shift. She and I talked about my seminary journey, about reading sacred texts, chanting, 
of course, meditation, my resistance to yoga, Reiki, energy work, shamanism, ritual, and channeling. So many options to explore, and I am curious to continue exploring them all. The more I remain open and curious about life, the more I expand into it. The more comfortable I am with change, the more at peace I become internally. One of my most fulfilling theater projects was being a member of a company that produced a Christmas carol for five consecutive years. It was based out of Albany and it toured around the Northeast. I played Mrs. Fred, the wife of Scrooge's nephew and one of the grave, grave robbers. This production starred John Astin as Scrooge. Remember him? Yeah. Da -da -da -da. <laughs> and we, every single company member, were all secretly in love with him. <laughs> totally. You can imagine that after five years, our company members all became very much like a family. We watched the youngest company members grow up. This included the actress, the, who, the young woman who played Fan, Scrooge's beloved sister from childhood. She joined the company at 16 and was so slight that she completely read on stage as being much younger. She began high school with us and was well into college when we finished. During our fifth and last season, I noticed that she seemed very aloof and often looked very tired and quite frankly, completely bedraggled. She had started smoking and she was eager to show me her pierced tongue, delighting in my complete and utter disgust. <laughs> when we went on the road, she began to seek me out and we'd take walks, we'd have coffee dates, we'd talk. She shared very little with me about the darkness that she was exploring, but it was very easy to see that she was in complete and utter pain. We closed, when we closed at the end of that season, she gave me a beautiful coffee mug to remember our times together and held me in a long embrace goodbye. And I didn't see her again after that. Now fast forward a few years and I'm doing a show up in Saratoga and the show comes down and there's an older woman waiting in line to say hello to me whom I do not recognize. Finally we meet and she tells me she is the mother of this young woman who played Fan in our Christmas Carol production. How wonderful! And I ask her how she's doing. She's good, just good, just great. We hugged and she didn't let me go when we separated, hands pulling on my arms. And quietly she said to me, you know, you saved her life. I didn't know how to respond. And I don't remember what I muttered, but I do completely remember what she said next. She told me, you never put her down. You never told her what to do. You just listened and you asked all the right questions. Mm -hmm. 
I've realized the uniting element for me in the story of my life and my spiritual journey is my curiosity. I'm not talking about childlike wonder, which I love, which I have. Ordinary inquisitiveness, or the kind that killed the cat. What I'm talking here is the consistent commitment to meet absolutely every single person, every single event, every single feeling shows up in my life with a deep and abiding curiosity. To live in a state of patient and observing noticing. Patient and observing noticing rather than my habitual reactivity. To strongly desire an intimacy with myself and with my life. To not only being open to change, not only open to change, but actively seeking it out. So the questions I now ask myself, what am I afraid of and why? Our fears are a treasure house of self-knowledge if we explore them. Where am I hiding? Where am I hiding? What does true freedom mean to me? What are the questions that you ask yourself these days? We know Holmes, like all good detectives, loves the small details and the contained questions. In his book, The Book of Life, Holmes gives his life philosophy as this, quote, so all of life is a great chain, the nature of which is known whenever we are shown a single link of it. The divine secret within each of us is indeed the greatest detective story ever written. And to close, one of my favorites by Rilke. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them and the point is to live everything. Live the questions now, perhaps then, someday far into the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you.